Hi everyone and welcome to Philosophy Rekindled with our focus book, the 1920 published version of Tertium Organum by P.D. Spensky. Today we are discussing chapter 19. This is part 3. You will find the audio version of this chapter as an additional audio to this podcast and you'll also find additional information on our website philosophyrekindled.com. Today my guest is Peter Lancet, hypnotherapist, author and classic scholar. And I'm Alice Flanagan, fiction author, computer programmer and podcaster. Thanks so much for joining us and welcome Pete. Chapter 19, we're up to the part where Spensky says, what is materiality? Now I'm going to read you Spensky's definition and uh, we'll take it from there. Materiality, this is the condition of existence in space and time, i.e. a condition of existence under which at one time and in one place Two similar phenomena cannot occur. This is an exhaustive definition of materiality. Fair enough, isn't it? If we had a block of wood, an iron bar could not occupy the same space at the same time. That's it. That's right. That's it. That's all he means. I, I, I think it's pretty self-explanatory. I, I think you know that, that was beautifully worded, and what else could he say? Yeah, it's a phenomenon. That, that's what we mean by... Space. Yeah, yeah. Um, obviously... You know, we you know just just the little rider. If we moved the block of wood, then the iron bar could occupy that same space, but it would be at a different time. That's right, and it will be in a sequence. And this is what Aspensky goes on to mm-hmm. to further discuss. He says, "Well, we're constantly seeing materiality, and it's a, a sequence of phenomena." So it. Our um, perception of it is that we have to choose. We have to select what we uh, experience in a at a point in time. If if it can only be one thing in that point of time, we have to select out of the myriad of things that are in that um, space and time. We have to pull, pull one of them out to be in our three dimensional experience. Do we? I'm not understanding that. Well, I'll read you what he says. We constantly observe the conditions of materiality in those cases in which we must create in our life a sequence of phenomena or are obliged to select, because matter does not permit us, to juxtapose in a definite interval of time more than a certain number of phenomena. Your point was that you said we have to choose one. We don't, and that's not what he's saying. What he's saying is that we have to select a sequence. It doesn't mean that we have to focus on one thing. I can observe several phenomena happening at the same time, but not in the same space. I can have, look, I tell you what, if I was being tortured, which I'm sure a lot of the listeners wish I was, I could have a hot iron put on this hand, on my left hand. I could have a hot iron put on my right hand. That's two separate phenomena happening simultaneously, and I can observe them. But I'm having to observe the sequence in which we get to this point. What he's saying is that we have to select or experience the sequence, not the individual phenomena. He's, he's talking exclusively about the sequence there. Because notice, notice that even when you read it, because our matter does not permit us to juxtapose in a definite interval of time more than a certain number of phenomena, not a single phenomena, a certain number. It, he, he expresses quite clearly that we are allowed to experience a certain number of phenomena. In, a, in that time interval, but we have to put them in sequence uh, other, to, make, to make sense of it in a material world. You know, what we can't have is a train arriving in the station before it's left its starting point. We have to 
select the sequence of events that get, even if we don't see them we we assume and imply them in in the sequence that we know things should happen we can't do it any other way but several things will happen um the, the train leaves the station the, its starting point it may stop at a load of other stations on the way we know that because we're looking at the notice board wishing it would get here on time and and then it arrives in our station we either observe or we suppose a sequence of events at the same time we're also observing that the cafe um, in the railway station that we're waiting in has closed for renovations and we really wanted a cup of coffee and a sandwich we can notice lots of phenomena or certainly several in the conscious mind um, simultaneously but then they do have to follow a sequence of events we are we are locked into them having a lot what we would consider to be a logical sequence of events yeah that makes sense because if he's saying that in, in all dimensions everything is happening all at the same time well that's no good to us we have to pull no. it out and go that 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 and so yeah that's exactly what, what, what that's yeah. exactly what he's doing so to uh, continue on with that train of thought that is what Aspensky is saying is the uh, telltale sign of something that's material. So, yeah. If, yeah, the fact that you have to select something in the sequence, that is the sign of materiality. And uh, he says outside of matter, the necessity for selection is done away with. And if we imagine the life of a feeling being independent of the conditions of materiality, such a being will be capable of possessing simultaneously such faculties as from our standpoint are incompatible, opposite, limitative of one another, power of being in several places at the, at the same time. And I, I think that's very interesting because I never actually considered the life of a feeling before that, before he mentioned it. The feeling isn't something material, it's not something you can see. But it's certainly uh, something we experience, and I'm not 100 percent sure what he means by, from that standpoint, it would possess simultaneously faculties from one standpoint that are incompatible, opposite, and eliminative of one another. I'm hoping that you can add some okay. color to that. How about this? At one and the same time, a person can feel melancholy but joyful. Some people enjoy melancholy. So you have. You have two separate feelings that can occupy a body or a consciousness. I use that word advisedly, but those feel two feelings. Um, and for that particular person, not for everyone, but for that particular person, not only are they not um, exclusive, mutually exclusive, they are codependent and they occupy that, that consciousness at one and the same time. Mm. That there, there are whole internet pages devoted to melancholia how look it up and you'll find the rest facebook pages they're loads people find joy in melancholy you can see it yeah so you can get so you get to, to um, what what a lot of people would consider to be conflicting feelings occupying the same space and time within that person where yes. in the material world they would they would necessarily have to be mutually exclusive of each other because they're they're not the same phenomena. Whereas these are and two different phenomena. And they could not phenomena. occupy the same space at the same time. Yeah. Whereas these don't need to occupy space. Yeah, these these um, not necessarily occupying space 
or time, but they they but we perceive them from our limited material standpoint as a coexisting simultaneously in the same place. We do get that perception yeah. of feelings. That's what he means there, in my yeah. in my opinion. And I think it's quite good that he says it. Yeah, I, I just love the fact that he said life of a feeling because I thought, oh, my God, I hadn't really yeah. considered feelings as not belonging to me but having their own existence and I'm kind of well, just that's grabbing. A, that's a, that takes us somewhere beyond what he's saying here as well because supposing, for example, you use what I said, let's say, let's say melancholy, melancholia as a feeling. What if it's not individualized? What if we not? What if? What if it, it's the case that we, as individuals in this life, draw upon this universal feeling of mel- melancholia that is absolutely everywhere at all times, and we, when we want to enjoy it, or when it, or when our condition calls upon it, we're just drawing upon this one melancholia that exists. That's something beyond what we're discussing here but it's just a thought yeah it's a great thought though because it makes makes me think well okay then you can get a human conditioner like that you can get a human con- like the whole country is feeling uh, a certain yeah, way. And, and what and what about this if melancholia exists and it's universal every other feeling will be as well and they're all occupying the same space at the same time for us to draw upon <laughs> But, uh, but wait, Pete, aren't they supposed to be vibrating at higher levels so we can all raise our vibration? <laughs> Are you trying to get me <laughs> to rant? Because it's not going to happen. I'm, I'm, try- telling you, I'm, I'm trying to I'm trying to get I've a been, rant out of you. <laughs> I've been diffuse. I've I've been diffusing lavender and frankincense, darling. You're not going to oh, get there. Damn you! Damn you! <laughs> Curse those essential oils. <laughs> Curse those essential oils. They're supposed to. They're not supposed to take the rant out of you when I need it. <laughs> It's like <laughs> I tell you what, I'll use something called cheer mixed with um, citrus bliss next week, and I'll I'll be I'll be flying. It'll be like I'm on cocaine or something. I'll be flying into the ceiling, and I'll be <laughs> kicking off. Well, I must say, I'm 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 having uh, enjoying on my desk holiday joy. It makes me it makes me think of Christmas and and those those lovely sort of times. So oh, cinnamon! I'm, I'm quite elevated as well. Well, I'm not. I'm not. I'm, I'm. 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 It, for me, it's like I've been smoking opium or something in an opium den. I'm just sitting here, chilled out, relaxed. It's not a problem. I'm sure we're going to get to a part. If he mentions Hinton, I'm just going to kick off. So let's keep going. Well, I, I've highlighted a spot where I think I'm going to get a reaction. Okay. We're, well, we're, uh, we're a page or two away. Let's move on. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> All right, so let's continue with the matter, boom, boom, at hand. Oh, and, close to being a joke. Uh, close to being a joke. Spensky's next point is that matter is not a substance. It is a condition of our awareness. And he gives an example. Does he, does he give an example? Does he, oh, yeah, I thought, I thought he gave an example. Yeah. And he gives what, an what example of, of a blind man. He says it's impossible to regard blindness as a substance. So blindness you would never say is matter. It's a condition. And he said matter is the same same thing. Matter is a, some sort of a blindness. That's, and I love that one because I, I may be wrong, possibly, but I'm pretty certain that that's his little, that's almost a joke of his Spensky's, isn't it? Because what he's trying to say is what he's just spent an entire book telling us, 
that when we observe matter in the third dimension in time and space, we're missing all of these other infinite dimensions. You know, we are focused on this narrow experience of perception. So, I, and I think that's what he's reminding us of there. Matter itself is blindness. We're blind to things like conditions, feelings, and all of the other things that are not bound by um, material positivi positivity and um, this, this idea of existence in time and space. Matter, by its very definition, the way that Spensky defines it for us, is this lack of perception of the greater um, existence beyond the th third dimension. Yeah, exactly. So, and yeah, I think it was a, a pun on his behalf. Matter is some yeah. sort of blindness. But I think what he then goes on to say is really, really uh, hammers that point that you've just made because he said it's perfectly useless and naive to to think that things like thoughts and feelings can be shown to exist objectively. So we can't measure or we can't weigh or we can't, what, whatever we use to, to grab thoughts and feelings can't be done by the scientific method. So to think that, you know, that, that, well, I think his point is yet again that science thinks they've got everything, you know, under control and they, they, they are the ones that can tell you how it all works. It's very easy to show that, you know, they can't do something with thoughts and feelings. They can only deal with matter. They can only deal with that substance that, that is objectively able to be measured. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because we were starting to get to this point when Uspensky wrote this book, where even rational, material, positivistic science was starting to get into areas where they couldn't even explain the material. <laughs> you know, they couldn't even explain yes. matter. We've got now, you know, where they keep they keep trying to find um, what is the the foundation of matter, and then we you know we get atoms and so on, and then the subatomic part. But now we're in the realms of of these areas which have ranted about plenty of times, and I'm not going to rant about it today because of my essential oils. Thank you. Um, but we are in these realms with mathematics where. The real mathematicians, the ones who are at the cutting edge, are saying, hang on, because the logical conclusions of, of where we are going with this uh, research into um, quanta and cosmology, it's telling us that we're going beyond existence. What I think people can, can sometimes avoid is the fact that where it's leading us is to we, what we call infinity, and infinity is not knowable by us which I think you'll find that Aspensky comes to, certainly not in material um, investigation. Mm. So, yeah, it's, you know, and, and Aspensky gives a great example, doesn't he? You know, when he's talking about these apparatus and instruments that can't discover thoughts and feelings, but he gives a scientific example. He talks about perpetual motion, and he says, the, which is a violation of the fundamental laws of the three-dimensional world, you know? Oh, yes, so, he does too. It's a little bit further down. Um, yeah, and well, I, I think, think that's interesting. I think, I think, um, I think that his point about matter being a condition suddenly yeah. throws science totally out of whack. If science can't explain things that they think they should be able to explain, it's because they're well, actually looking at matter as an object. Well, 
I'm, you know, I, he has told us this before. It's like he's rubbing it in, isn't he? Um, hmm. And and it is. He does, I, I, you know, and I can't disagree with him, and I don't disagree with him. You know, we really do need to fundamentally understand that while science does have its place for us in in our material human existence, uh, where where we do concentrate on the third third dimension, materialism time and space which are you know really illusions they science does help us there but it doesn't get us anywhere near the truth does it really uh, and, and well, th- there are that's his thing. there are no instruments that can measure that so what's his point with perpetual motion i'll read the sentence perpetual motion would be the only victory over the three-dimensional world in the three-dimensional world itself what is well, his it point? Would, well it would be if we could actually make it happen. Uh, people have been investigating um, perpetual motion uh, for the longest time. And, you know, we never, we're never doing it. The problem is because of the laws of thermodynamics. We can only think of material um, causes for perpetual motion, can't we? And so if you try to create a machine that would um, give us perpetual motion, the very act of motion itself, the friction, would wear down the material machine and it would no longer exist and therefore the, the motion would cease and it wouldn't be perpetual, would it? You have to, you have to like, find infinity to get perpetual motion and that doesn't exist mm. in the third dimension. Anyway, I just think it's interesting because it was a mathematical and engineering problem, which I guess is something that Spensky would like, you know, to, to bring in, into this as a as a good example, yeah, and he's um he's italicized perpetual motion, and in the three dimensional world itself is also italicized. But I think the thing the word motion um is is a three dimensional concept in itself. I mean, the well, fact that yeah, something is, is moving is something through time, isn't it? I mean, it's it only moves with, with the construct of time, which is is in itself third dimensional. Uh, as we as we know, yeah, and this is now meaning that we have to select the sequence perpetual motion, and we can only see a part of it. Let me tell you something else that I, I it occurs to me about um, perpetual motion is how can we ever prove it? Because we'll be dead. We won't know if it's continuing to move after our death. Not from the you know not in that materialistic sense. So we can never prove it because we won't live. To prove it, can you imagine that, that that humanity appoints one person in every generation whose job it is to sit and observe perpetual motion, and that's their entire life? Watch those <laughs> little balls die, hanging in suspension, um, going click, 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 click. Well, whatever the motion is, uh, it doesn't matter, does it? It's just that that's their life. They have to observe that it doesn't stop and then restart itself. Actually. Your example there wouldn't be perpetual motion because mathematically there come when a ball is swinging on a wire, it reaches the top point of the swing and for an infinitesimal moment, it stops swinging. I would like to refer you and our readers to a fabulous book by Itzhak Bentoff called Stalking the Wild Pendulum, which talks about exactly this and where consciousness sits. It's the best explanation of consciousness that I have ever seen anywhere. Wonderful. It's a very slim volume, massively accessible, unlike some of Vespensky, and certainly unlike in, in Hinton. 
and the and that poor Russian professor Ormov Ormov was Ormov Ormov. Well, you know, um, yeah, um, Yitzhak Bentov's um, book "Stalking the Wild Pendulum" is incredible. So I, I, but all, all I wanted to say is, you know, perpetual motion tends to have to be completely linear or circular. What it can't do is go from one one side stop and then go back to the other side stop go back to the other side stop because at that point it's not perpetual yeah you're right there there's an argument that it's not perpetual um well the the action of the machine making it happen i don't know maybe you say that that's that machine is perpetually running but is it at some point it stops because it's got to bring the the object back the other way i don't know it's this is a philosophical argument that we don't need to get into, but at some point, balls clicking in those like sort of Newton's cradle mm, things, stop. They, ha- they have to stop at the top of the swing so that they can come back. And like I say, rather than us uh, go into it here, the best thing to do is to point people to the most incredible book on the subject that everyone should own called Stalking the Wild Pendulum by Yitzhak Bentov. You heard it here, folks. You heard it here, and that you're right. That is a great book. I, I think because uh, you pointed me in that direction a little while ago. I certainly did. It is it is fabulous. So Ospensky's talking about objective knowledge and subjective knowledge, and his main point is that objective knowledge can grow infinitely, providing that the um, we keep perfecting instruments and refining instruments to observe. New, new new phenomena and experiment. Do you think that's his main point? I think that's I think that's a casual throwaway because I think his main point. Well, look, it's quite obvious. Um, we we have the experience of it. As we have developed better instruments, we can we can go closer to what material science thinks is the source of, of everything. For example, we started we started looking through bits of glass that magnify things, and we've ended up with electron microscopes. We're still no closer to finding the source of everything, but we have. You know, we can we can see ever smaller things. That's a given. I, th- I don't even think any... I think he, even a cunning savage and a simple woman and a four-year-old child would recognise that. All right, but, let me, but let you, me just you say, cut me off before I get to the point that I was that was leading up to. Well, you, you did say that. Okay. It can do all this. It can move infinitely in a direction based on the fact that we keep on refining our instruments but it cannot transcend the limits of the three-dimensional sphere. So it doesn't matter how perfecting we get of our means of observing. And this is science's big point. Oh, well, if we can't tell you now, we'll we'll find a way of proving it with instruments, etc., in the future. So, you know, watch this space. But the point is they're still just looking at the third-dimensional sphere. They're they're not going any, any further. Is that what you think his main point is? Yeah, because, you know, uh, he makes a wonderful, pithy little comment that I think sums it up. Objective knowledge does not study facts, but only the perception of facts. Absolutely. Phenomena. And I think think that is what he was getting to, leading up to, Mm. with all that stuff, which reiterates things that he's already um, talked about. But there it is. You have to remember that when scientists tell you We've proved this. They've proved nothing of the kind. They've only proved 
something from the perception of a material investigation. But as we know, we're only looking at something that's poking through the totality of existence. We're looking through a narrowly focused lens without seeing a big, wider picture. Yeah, we're doing all of these things that we've talked about before. Yep. Yeah, exactly so. And then he says, subjective knowledge studies the facts. The facts of consciousness, which let us remember we have found out to be the only real facts. So his subjective knowledge, is he uh, is he saying with subjective knowledge we are outside of consciousness? I don't know because I haven't got the bit that you just said. Oh, is that right? It's the very next mm, sentence. That's right. Not What's your me. very next sentence? My very next sentence is, after the bit that I read, objective knowledge does not study facts but only the perception of facts, I've got something that he thinks is so important that this entire little piece is in uppercase bold. Oh, Okay, so he's cut out a whole paragraph and we've gone straight straight to the next. Because, yeah, in order that objective knowledge shall transcend the limits of the three-dimensional sphere, it is necessary that the conditions of perception shall change. And that's, I've got basically the same, except he says the conditions of subjective receptivity, so perception. That makes more sense to me, perception shall change, what you've written. Yeah. Yeah. Subjective um, receptivity is a cack-handed way of saying perception. (laughs) Yeah. Because we all all perceive subjectively. So, you know, so just say perception. We all, you know. Yeah. And I think think he did well to change that. (laughs) I think he did too. And so basically I think what he's saying is that our, our perception of the world, if we can expand that, if we can um, bypass our, or well, enhance our receptivity, which is our consciousness or our awareness, um, to expand, to encapsulate more than what we're doing now, then we will see more of the warehouse. Like we're basically getting a a broader beam on our torch. And that, that to me, yes, I know he's, he's, he's put it into caps, but that is just a statement as far as I'm concerned until he tells us how we do that because it's it's like saying to me, raise your vibration. What does that mean? What does it mean? Um, is, that, does, is that what he's saying? No, he's not saying raise your vibration. I'm saying it's like it's when someone says raise your vibration, you go, well, what does that actually mean? What does he actually mean when he says um, it is necessary that the conditions of subject or of perception change. Well, he'll well he'll get he'll get to that later in the book. Yeah, but he's not he's not telling you that here. He's still he's still talking about where where we, our thinking is wrong, and we need to we need to get through this this way of thinking before we even start looking at how we solve the issue. Solve well what what we perceive to be a problem. So to me, this is like the the announcing statement of what's to come. This is where, what you, what you have to do. Because he does, he does go into after this yep. how you do it, and I think this is like that's why he's put it in caps. He's heralding if you want to get there, this is what you have to do. He's just saying that you are going to have to change. He's not telling us what we have to do here yet. He's just he's announcing he's announcing that you've got to change the way that you look at things. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, so it's good though. Yeah, I think it's I, I think it's good because I think this is the the point where he's. He's and yeah, as you say, announcing. He's put that in in uppercase letters for a reason, and he's like, "Pay attention to this because this is where we're going." Yes, you can't continue the way you're going, and have a change. And so, we we get into a very interesting part of the chapter, and uh, I'm going to um, 
I'm going to skip to the part where he talks about uh, objective knowledge depending on the properties of subjective knowledge, or to put it differently, oh, as he says... How boring. I like the idea of trying to explain the spherical nature of the Earth to a dog. Oh, OK. All right, let's go there. And I'm, I'm only joking that. with you. I'm only, <laughs> I'm only joking. I didn't well, highlight that. I like, I like... Well, as he said, you know, um, our recept, our receptive... Our receptivity um, is limited, and ob- ob- and because of that, you know, um, our objective knowledge is obviously limited. It has to be because it's it's based on this limited perception of of, of the totality yeah. of existence, and and you know he says it's impossible to convey to a dog the idea of the sphericality of the earth. To make it remember the weight of the sun and the distances between the planets is equally impossible. The, its objective knowledge is vastly more personal than ours, and the cause of it lies in the dog's more limited psyche. Well, okay, I'm not sure that that means that the dog's um, psyche is more limited, but I just think that it has a different focus. Within the material existence in which the dog exists, it has a totally different focus. To a dog, what we look for through science, isn't important. But the dog is still perceiving the material world. And and I'm going to go as far as to say that a dog perceives beyond the three-dimensional world too. But that's another story. I have experience of it. And anybody that owns a dog will have had experience of it. So, But I'm not going to go down that road. Let's keep stick with the Spensky, really. Uh, but I just think it's an interesting point. Because what he's using the dog analogy to do is to say that your view and your perception of the existence around you is limited by your focus, by where your torchlight shines. I think it's a good example. And you can't, sh- you can't tell somebody that there's something outside where the torch beam shines if they don't have the means to move the torch to illuminate it. That person will just go, you're mad, you're, you're crazy. Ask anybody, ask any scientist what they think about um, meditation and altered states of consciousness and all of this and see what the mainstream response is to it. Just see what it is. And you're, you're getting this exact analogy. The scientist is like the dog with a very different and limited perception. I'm saying the dog in the way that Spensky is describing it. The scientist is not capable of shifting that narrow focus of his own torchlight to illuminate anything other than this material, three-dimensional, positivistic materialism, and that's that. And anything that you suggest outside of that narrow beam of focus to the material, positivistic scientist, they will laugh at and they will laugh at you, and they'll make the mainstream laugh at you for even suggesting it. Ah, how hokey. Oh, that's a bit woo-woo. I think the, the most loathsome term, woo-woo, has come up um, for anything that's not materialistic and positivistic. Oh, that's all a bit woo-woo for me. I, I loathe that term. I would crawl over broken glass to smash it in the face of anybody I hear saying, saying it. But thankfully, I only hear it on social media, so I can't crawl through the ether and do that. <laughs> You're saved from the glass. It's, I uh, am, yes. the, the other interesting point with using... Was that ranty enough, example, by the way? What, what, 
Yeah, you're getting there, Pete. You, you're working your way up. I think. The lavender's yeah, wearing that, off. I was going to say, that diffuser must be running low. <laughs> it is. The, the interesting <laughs> point about using the dog analogy is that the dog and the man of science uh, who, who could measure the weight of the sun, etc., are in the same space and time experiencing the world mm-hmm. according to how um, how they focus but it's the same it's the same world they're experiencing but they're not experiencing it in the same way either well I think that they are I, I think that they are I think that now we come down to choice the scientist chooses to investigate things and see things from a point of view of investigation the dog looks to its own pleasure and food but both so of them you t- are so focusing, you tell me uh, yeah on what? both of them are focusing on on something specific but that doesn't mean and Spensky's made this point over and over again that that what they're experiencing is the actual thing in itself they're experiencing yeah. uh what they're focused on and their perception there of it but it's um mm-hmm. it's it has nothing to do with the the actual subject it's um it's not subjective knowledge it's objective knowledge from from that focus and, well, uh, actually, actually, it is subjective knowledge. Aspensky does this um, incredibly paradoxical phrase he introduces when he's talking about the dog not being able to, you're not able to impress things on it. And it says, its objective knowledge is vastly more personal than ours. And the cause of it lies in the dog's more limited psyche. But this phrase, its objective knowledge is vastly more personal than ours. It doesn't have any objective knowledge. Personal knowledge is subjective. Mm, that's true. I think what he should have said is that its subjective <laughs> knowledge is vastly more focused on its own personal needs. I think so too. That's exactly what I think too. That's exactly what I think too. Uh, you know... Because the scientist and the dog, as you say, they're operating in the same material, positivistic world. Time, does time run the same for a dog? I mean, we have this ludicrous thing whereby we say, oh, dogs dogs don't live as long as us, so one of our years is seven years to a dog. Does a dog even perceive a year? Does it even know? It doesn't, does it? I'm going to suggest that it, I'm going to go out on a limb without any scientific materialistic proof whatsoever and say the dog doesn't know what a year is. It has no idea. It, does, it doesn't have any idea that, that, that time is running quicker for it than it runs for us. I'm, I'm absolutely certain that the dog doesn't need to perceive that. Only we seem to need to perceive that. Does that make us more... Does that make us... High, a higher form of being than the dog. I would tell you, from that point of view, the dog has a far better existence. It's interested in sex, food, its own safety, and fun. I, I, I've owned dogs all my life. Dogs are interested in those things. Now, trust me on this one. I'm only interested in those things, but I'm unfortunately in a society <laughs> where I have to earn a living and, and stuff. <laughs> so it's a dog's life is probably a good thing. <laughs> Well, that's what that that's what that phrase actually means. Hey, hey, you know, you've got it easy. It's a dog's life, isn't it? Easy. You've got it easy. Yeah. Fabulous. Yeah. Somebody brings you the food. You go out for a run every day. If you haven't had your bits chopped off, you'll you'll be trying to shag everything that moves. 
and, and, you, and, you, and you'll roll around on the grass, you'll find pleasure in sniffing things. Dog's life, it's dead easy. Yeah, sounds good to me. I mean, apart from the rolling and, on in the grass. And does a dog need to know, for its enjoyment, the weight of the sun? Does it need to have that? Does it need to have that measurement? No. I would suggest not. Do and we? And I think this is. Do we? We don't either. We don't either. No, thank we you. don't need we to. We don't know. do we? Um, ask your native people in Australia whether they needed our scientific bullshit brought bringing onto that continent of Australia. Ask them if they needed it. They didn't. They had the happiest lives. Those few of them left that lived that original life, and there are a few in the Northern Territory and some in Western Australia, very few, but they are the happiest people on Earth. It's virtually measurable. They, they have no concerns. Does that mean that they're... What does that mean about them as, as, as human beings? They're having this incredible ex existence coexisting with the planet with the eco-structure of the planet, with the diversity of the... They are, they are part of this. We are, because of science, we are apart from the planet and from the ecosystem. We really are. Yeah. So to me, to yeah. me, the dog's like... The dog... This isn't what Ospensky's saying, and we're off the topic here a little bit. I'm saying that the dog does have a, a different focus, but within that material, that three-dimensional range. And it is, therefore, its perception of things is subjective. I think so. So there's a paradox. I think where Wierspinski is, where Spinsky's going with his point, which you know I think comes down to probably what we've been saying. He says he's talking about this objective knowledge, which I'm going to say, you know, this is how you experience the world is what I'm calling objective knowledge. Oh my uh, god! He, 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 yes, I know. He goes, he goes <laughs> back to his his. <laughs> this is where I'm hoping for a brand. I knew you were coming. <laughs> He goes. He goes. I'll read it to you because I think. I can't Go on. You've got. You've got to. You've got to. <laughs> yes. You've got to read it. Indeed, between the objective knowledge of a savage, not not a clever savage, just a savage, no, just a savage. Um, and that of Herbert Spencer, there is an an enormous difference, but that of neither the one nor the other transcends the limits of the three dimensional sphere i.e. the limits of the conditional unreal. And I think that's his his point. It's, it, it, well, we, we were saying a dog and a scientist. I think you're saying, uh, he's, uh, Spensky's saying Savage and Herbert Spencer. Same, same, well, same. I, we're just... Yeah, hold on though. There's something really cool about this that Spensky has done. Spensky has never, in this little paragraph, suggested that the... Um, Objective knowledge of Herbert Spencer is is in any way more elevated than that of the savage. It's that different. is his point. That I think is that's fantastic, and I think that's fantastic. Yeah. And I thought it was worth bringing that out because he is he doesn't exactly specify it, but he, he it's it's there. It's absolutely there, and I know that he means it. Yeah, that is exactly the point that I got from it. That that he's saying, you know, you you could put yourself as. You know, I am the Herbert Spencer. I'm more elevated than the Savage, but you're no more elevated because you're still limited by the conditional unreal. You, you, yeah, by by the, three, di are. the limit of the limit of the three dimensional sphere, the conditional, the unreal. I would hazard to say that the Savage would be less limited by the conditional unreal because I'd say they have a better connection with the planet and the spiritual 
I know. Sort of we, vibe. I, I understand that Spensky can't go there yet because yes. he's, he's leading us bit by bit. So at the moment, we are only talking about um, objective experience of the, this limited sphere. We happen to know, I, I certainly happen to know from experience that certain people's, and I, when I say people's, I don't mean like, oh, there's this one great shamanic leader, like, you know, the, the medicine man of a tribe. I'm talking about people. When I talk about Native Australian people, I'm talking about ent the entire nation had that connection. That wasn't like they had, oh, there's one special person in our tribe that we go to for all this shamanic journey and stuff. It's like, we all do that. Why would I need to go to somebody? I can do it. They were all connected. Mm. They lived a life of, and do live a life of connectivity. Um, I find yeah. that I find that fascinating, and and to me, yeah, we're we're going a little off where Ospensky Ospensky knows this, by the way, and he is taking us there. But uh, you know, it, it's interesting We've got that the when we talk about, yeah, oh yes, of course, we're I'm I'm now focusing on my sequence. <laughs> yes, <laughs> but yeah, we won't we won't go into it too much because we are going to come to the, to this, but. Um, not in this chapter, by the way, but we are coming to it. But the let, let, let's move on because I think there's some, there's more stuff to come here in, in this. It's it's very very interesting. He, he's now giving yeah. us example after example after example of of how that how we can actually understand what he's getting at here, so that we're preparing ourselves. This is almost hypnotic stuff. Example after example after example, and it's it's like hypnotic preparation for what's about to come. We pre he's preparing us to open up, and I love that. Yeah, I love it too. And look, we have a fair bit to go, and I don't want to rush that, so I'm going to leave it there and leave the best for last. So thanks again, Pete, for a wonderful conversation, and thanks, everyone, for listening. <laughs>